Get down to the real soul. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. We're getting out to the West Coast. Today the blowing wonder Go and the much what the river is not is not Our opening song is You Don't Pull No Punches, But You Don't Push the River by Van Morrison. Off of the 1974 album Vidin Fleece. And that song gives us our title for today's show, Don't Pull No Punches, with the end of ice author Dar Jamaica. In his essential essay, Fate, published in 1860, in the book The Conduct of Life, Ralph Waldo Emerson writes, The book of nature is the book of fate. She turns the gigantic pages, leaf after leaf, never returning one. One leaf she lays down, a floor of granite, then a thousand ages, and a bed of slate, a thousand ages, and a measure of coal, a thousand ages, and a layer of marl and mud. Vegetable forms appear, her first misshapen animals, zoophyte, trilobium, fish, then saurians, rude forms, in which she has only blocked her future statue, concealing under these unwieldy monsters the fine type of her coming king. The face of the planet cools and dries, the races meliorate, and man is born. But when a race has lived its term, it comes no more again. The population of the world is a conditional population. Of course, Emerson's coming king has seemingly found a way to turn one of nature's gigantic pages and revealed just how conditional the human population really is. Don't pull no punches But you don't push the river Darja Mail shows us this as well in his new book, The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption, published by the New Press, in which Chapter by chapter, he takes us on a tour of our endings. The end of ice, the end of forests, the end of the coral reef, the end of coastal cities. It is in this way, as he stands within the sights of destruction, that he bears witness for us. So too, Jamal asks us to begin to grieve for the world that is surely lost, and to find a way toward adaptive change, so that something may be salvaged. It may seem strange to say so, but to quote Emerson again, this time from the essay Circles, the way of life is wonderful. It is by abandonment. Dar Jamail is an award-winning journalist whose previous books are The Will to Resist, Soldiers Who Refuse to Fight in Iraq and Afghanistan, and Beyond the Green Zone, Dispatches from an Unembedded Journalist in Occupied Iraq. Jamail reported from Iraq for more than a year, as well as from Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Turkey over the last 10 years. A man, said Oliver Cromwell, never rises so high as when he knows not whither he is going. This is our plight. May we rise to meet it. And now, don't pull no punches with Dar Jamail on Interchange on WFHB. felt extremely imperative to go out and and visit the front lines of these places because I felt like this is what 
people aren't giving, and including myself when I was sitting at home writing these monthly climate dispatches, as I call them, and, and researching all the latest reports. And it's one thing to read about glaciers lo- losing X trillion tons of ice a year, and it's quite another to go out there to a place where I'd been before and see that amount of ice, or not that specific amount, but a massive amount of ice that's just gone that's not there anymore and really feel that in your body and so that's mm. what i really have been trying to do more recently with this book and with my writing yeah it's it is an almost impossible thing to convey uh i think i told you via email that i've been reading uh, william volman's two-volume carbon ideologies and one of the things that kind of strikes you reading that is as you just pile on statistic after statistic about uh, fossil fuels and burning and, you know, tons of carbon and tons of this and tons of that in the atmosphere. And uh, you just kind of, um, and he makes a point of this too, it's almost a joke at some point. These numbers are uh, not something you can understand, as well as the fact that they're almost entirely, you know, gamed, you know, not none of the numbers, not on the, the you know, the people who are trying to report on the on the problems of climate, but from the, you know, the fuels, uh, fossil fuel industry and the government uh, panels that the numbers depend on so much, um, you know, where you where you stick your pin in the map, right? Where you where you decide to begin to count things and all these kinds of things. So it's just, it's almost like a joke, the running numbers that we have to confront for these things. It's almost as though the reality gets lost in the information, mm-hmm. you know, and at the risk of sounding contradictory, but that's why I feel it imperative to go out and see it for yourself. And I, if, if I could wave a magic wand, everyone would, just like when I was reporting from Iraq, I wish every American could go over there and see where their tax dollars are going and what it's causing. Because, uh, it, it, it's, uh, I, I believe the fundamental cause of climate disruption is our disconnect from the planet. Mm-hmm. And I, my hope now with my work is to do what I can to try to reestablish something like a reconnection through the writing, but then ultimately encouraging people go back out there, you know, go back to these places in nature that you love and care about and spend time there. And A, you'll see it for yourself, but B, it's only with this really strong connection from the planet are we really going to respond accordingly to the crisis that's upon us. Mm-hmm. Dar, why why do you use the word climate the words climate disruption versus climate change or global warming or things like that? Trying to just be more scientifically accurate, you do see disruption used increasingly frequently in a lot of the scientific studies and and then knowing that I'm writing for a predominantly US audience that uh, is is consistently subjected to, at least in the corporate media, to fossil fuel denialism. Mm-hmm. And, and climate change, the word change was actually promoted by Dick Cheney mm. uh, um, and, and some of his oil oily colleagues in Halliburton because it lessens the crisis that's upon us. And, and so words like warming, I think, are even too soft. And, and, and really, to be most scientifically accurate, disruption is the most accurate because uh, we we have literally disrupted global climate patterns, and that's why we're seeing what we're seeing today. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, let's just look at your title. I, I like to do this. It seems the simplest way to begin, even though we have already begun. the uh, The title of the book is "The End of Ice." Uh, bearing witness and finding meaning in the path of climate disruption. So the end of ice is one of those things we've been hearing about for a while, right? Uh, uh, we we are uh, gifted with the, the images of uh, polar bears drifting away on, on little ice cubes out in, in the oceans. Uh, the end of ice is literally the end of ice, right? 
It, it is. Uh, I mean, even just since the book came out, literally mm-hmm. the same month this book was was released, January 15th, um, literally right in that same week, there was a, a very big study that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Lead author Eric Rigno, uh, NASA-affiliated scientists out of UC Irvine, and, and Rigno told the New York Times when that report came out, he said, quote, Antarctica is melting away. So we that and that was the study that showed that melting had increased sixfold since just the 1970s, mm-hmm. and that's that's the refrigerator of the planet. And and then we look out from there, you know, that literally most alpine, most if not all, alpine glaciers across the entirety of the planet outside of the poles will be gone by 2100. In the United States, uh, there's several studies, and including a, a glaciologist in Glacier National Park with the U.S. Geologic Survey, uh, Dan Fagri, who said uh, probably all glaciers in the contiguous 48 will be gone by 2100. I mean, in a, in a geologic timescale, this is a blink of an eye. I'm Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is award-winning journalist Darja Mail, author of The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption, published by the New Press. We focus throughout on confronting the certainty of the peril while adapting to the uncertainty of a way of living. And we can push it up a little farther than that even in terms of not having the ability to to actually predict those out, you know, out that far to 2100. You could say it could happen much sooner than that uh, in terms of how things, uh, you know, accelerate or uh, accumulate. That's exactly right. And I'm glad that you bring that up because there's a, a critical component when we talk about the climate crisis which is nonlinear feedback loops mm-hmm. where we're it, well and, and to even simplify it more than that, these nonlinear changes, like meaning we cannot say it's going to go in a straight line in, the, in a certain direction. Uh, it's literally the hockey stick graph where it starts going kind of at an angle and then it literally starts going straight up. And, you know, another way you'll hear it referenced is exponential changes. So uh, when we when we talk about the fact that the Arctic sea ice is uh, based on observational data, it looks like we'll probably start having periods of ice-free Arctic, uh, an Arctic Ocean that is without uh, sea ice by as early as 2023 is what it's looking like as of today. <laughs> not not once, anything to laugh about, Dar, but that's just shocking, right? It, it, it is shocking. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about the planet being transformed before our very eyes mm. and then the, the radical climate shifts that happen immediately upon that occurring I think are going to really stun people. Mm. And, and we have to start, take as hard as this information is, I feel like that's why it's imperative to take it in now so that as things intensify and, and further worsen, we we know we've kind of already braced ourselves for it and we can behave appropriately. Mm. So we talk about the ice going away, and uh, I think this is called a blue ocean event. Um, the idea, and you say that the, the Arctic and the ice at the poles are our are, um, refrigerator that keeps the climate as, as is in a sense. And uh, so, but it also, one thing I think people don't quite understand that it's a reflective device, right? Uh, the idea that the sun, as it, as it heats the planet or as the radiation comes to the planet, the, the ice actually reflects it back out into the atmosphere. And, and, and that's a part of how it keeps the, the, the climate as it is. So if that's not there, then it just means the ocean becomes hotter and hotter, quicker and quicker. 
That's exactly right. And there's some scientists that believe once that sea ice is gone and that reflective, that giant reflective mirror is gone, then we could see as much as a half degree C temperature increase on the planet immediately. Mm. And, and, and to give you an idea of how much that is, I mean, since the Industrial Revolution began, we've, we've warmed the planet 1.1 C to date. So that's half again as much as the total heat we've added to the planet literally overnight. And, and that's a, I know that's probably a hard thing for people to get their minds around, but that's a perfect example of some of these nonlinear changes. Yeah, it's, it is hard to get your mind around it. And as you say, if it happens that quickly, then the, the changes will be visible. <laughs> right. I mean, things will begin to be very visible. Right. And, and you know, as you know, they already are. Right. I mean, right. It's, for those of us who fortunate, myself included, living in somewhat of a bubble, meaning my house hasn't been burnt down mm -hmm. because I don't live around, in Paradise, California, where the entire city was incinerated by wildfires amped up by climate disruption. You know, I don't live in the panhandle of Florida and I haven't lost my home and all my possessions by a hurricane and flooding. I don't live on the the Delta of Bangladesh, and I've had to migrate because the place where I grew up is now completely underwater from erosion and sea level rise. So if we're not directly in an impact zone like that, then somehow climate disruption still feels like this future tense thing. But really, all of us need to, all we need to do, all of us, uh, is just look out the window and notice the changes that are happening right here. So even, for example, even though my house hasn't burnt to the ground or been flooded away yet, um, in the summers up here, the wildfire smoke, there's weeks on end where it's unbearable. Mm. I mean, and if you have respiratory issues, it's going to be untenable for you to live up here. And you can say that about the better part of the West Coast already. And it's now become accepted that, you know, there's going to be periods of summer where it's essentially smoke season. So, you know, these things like this that are happening that never used to happen before on a regular basis. Mm. And I think in the book you, you note, or there's a, a long chapter, a chapter on um, uh, that, that takes place in Miami or Miami Beach, uh, where you interview people about just the changes that have happened in Miami, Miami Beach and the, the sea level rise has forced that, that community to actually lift its streets already. Uh, and it's it, it likely not long for this world anyway. That's right. So I, I interviewed the city engineer, Bruce Mallory of Miami Beach, and he was tasked with going around trying to uh, basically mitigate and, and beef up the city for impending sea level rise. And so they had funding to raise a bunch of the streets three feet. He knew it wasn't enough, but it was just the goal was the stated goal was to buy us some time so that we can try to save the city and try to see what else we can do to prepare for what's coming. But then there were all kinds of problems already happening with that. For example, uh, high tide and a flooding event occurred. And so in one of these areas where the streets were raised, a giant high rise building flooded uh, because of the runoff from the raised streets. And then they went to go try to get insurance. And the in insurance company told the owner of the building, well, actually, we don't need to insure you because now your first floor is technically a basement. <laughs> so there's all sorts of unforeseen consequences yeah. like this happening. I'm Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is award-winning journalist Darja Mail, author of The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption, published by the New Press. We focus throughout on confronting the certainty of the peril while adapting to the uncertainty of a way of living.
But the reality is, cutting to the chase with the two leading sea level rise experts that I interviewed for the book there, South Florida is going to have to be completely relocated. Mm. All the people that live there are going to have to move. And we should theoretically, if, if we had a responsible government, they would behaving by uh, – that behavior would look like an orderly, government-funded, controlled, mandated evacuation and relocation of millions of people out of South Florida, the remediation of toxic waste sites, the, the closure, the decommissioning and closure and removal of the Turkey Point nuclear plant, which is just south of Miami at six feet elevation. All of these things should be happening. And in fact, of course, the opposite is happening where <clears throat> none of that is happening. We have this giant housing bubble, economic growth building happening all over the place, and we're basically just waiting for a giant collapse to happen once the seawater starts entering people's homes down there, which is inevitable. Mm. It is one of the things that strikes you as you look at these um, these maps that you can get on. When you look at the the Blue Ocean event and you look at the the um, the projections of the reduction of the coastlines as we have them now, all, all the coastlines go away, uh, all which is where most major cities are or near to the coastline, right? So so really, the maps show every single one of them being gone. So. Um, as you say, there should already be in place this uh, this knowledge uh, and the the acceptance of the knowledge and and the immense as as you just noted, even for let's say one city, it'd be an immense job to to rela- relocate and move out. We're going to have an immigration crisis in our own country. We do, and we it has already started. I mean, there's 37 villages in Alaska alone due to melting permafrost, eroding coasts, and and, sto- and increasing uh, intensity of storms that have to be completely relocated. Now, these are small villages, but that's 37 villages of a largely indigenous population that have to be relocated. Those are internal refugees right here in the United States. We've already had a couple of different smaller tribes in southern Louisiana because the marshes are washing away from erosion and sea level rise. Those are already U.S. climate refugees. We already have people from, say, Paradise, California, uh, the town I mentioned earlier that burned up last summer. Those people lost everything. Where are they? Where are they going to go? Some of them aren't going to be able to relocate there. So it's really already started. But yes, the the level that we're talking about when when you lose a city like Miami or New Orleans or some of these other major coastal cities, then we're talking about millions of people that are going to have to be relocated immediately. And then when you expand out and look at the macro of the planet and you look at the fact that there's already tens of meters of sea level rise baked into the system, if we stopped all CO2 emissions today, we're talking about every major coastal city on the planet that's going to have to be relocated and and or completely abandoned to the sea. Well, these aren't the only issues, of course, in your book. Uh, it's just, just not the end of ice we're worrying about. We're, we're losing the Amazon rainforest. We're losing insects. We're losing all sorts of species. Extinction rates are, are immense uh, since even the 1970s. Um, you talk about uh, just the way that things have – and I think this is part of the, the sort of nonlinear progression of all things in the ecosystem, right? Uh, that these things are interrelated. And for some reason, we still don't quite understand. There are multiple reports about loss of insects. Now, um, you know, I have a lot of friends that like to joke about this. So, you know, we're, we're getting, we need to stop eating cows and chickens and whatnot and start learning to eat insects. And I'm like, well, they're all dying, too. That's right. Very disconcertingly, there's been several studies come out recently that the culmination of them essentially shows that we are currently on a trajectory due to 
uh, climate disruption, habitat loss, and ex- insecticides that we're losing 2.4% of the global insect biomass annually. So at that current trajectory, assuming it does not accelerate, we will have no insects by 2100. And that means that essentially, I'm sorry, by within up the next 100 years, it's slightly over 2100. Mm-hmm. And without insects, I mean, that's 75% of the pollination capacity of everything that we eat. That's uh, recycling of nutrients. That's food for other animals. In short, without insects, we're not going to be here. So these are extremely disconcerting, alarming issues. And again, if we had responsible reaction by not just this government, but governments around the globe, it would look something like out of the sci-fi movie when uh, malevolent aliens are invading the planet and we have to band together for our survival. I mean, that's the type of global response we should be having right now to this crisis. It's time for a break. This is What Difference Does It Make? A Smith's cover by Bobby Bear Jr., off of the 2002 release Young Criminals Starvation League. More with the End of Ice author Dar Jamail when Interchange returns. Stay with us. But still I leap in front of a flying bullet for you. So what difference does it make? So what difference does it make? It makes not, but now you have gone. And you must be looking very old tonight And I'm still fond of you And I'm still fond of you The devil will find work for idle hands to do So I stole and I lied And why? Because you asked me to But now you make me feel so ashamed Because I've only got two heads Well, I'm still fond of you So what difference does it make? What difference does it make? It makes none But now you have gone And your prejudice won't keep you old tonight Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show tonight is Don't Pull No Punches with Truth Out staff reporter Dar Jamail, whose new book, The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption, was published in February by the New Press. In this segment, Jamail stresses our obligations to our world, regardless of the bleak future facing us. There are various modes of approaching this. We missed the chance to fix it in the 1980s, but we can focus on mitigation in order to build resiliency on the way to adaptation. Well, I'm still fond of you But no more apologies No more apologies As bleak as things appear, and they, they absolutely are bleak, that I believe that we still have a moral obligation no matter what to uh, practice two things that indigenous cultures in this country have always believed, which is we're born onto this planet with obli- two primary obligations, to serve and take care of the planet and to make decisions in order to safeguard future generations. And so if I wake up with those as my modus operandi, then I have 
an unbelievable amount of work cut out for myself and, and, and have plenty of work to do. So the idea that, well, we should just throw our hands up and say, what the hell it's all over anyway, or I'm just going to sit around and whine or, or, you know, just sit here and talk about how the world's going to end. No, there's, there's always going to be work to do because we don't know what's going to happen. Even if it looks as though humans could even go extinct, we still have these moral obligations. Mm. So uh, it reminds me, I think, uh, when you, you talk about throwing up your hands, I, I don't remember, I think it was a Trump uh, Department of Transportation report or something like that, which which l- actually admitted to the realities of climate uh, disruption and basically said what you just said, well, we can't do anything about it anyway, so let's go on and keep doing these things we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the report uh, inadvertently leaked out uh, that 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 we've already were had a minimum of seven degrees Fahrenheit warming by twenty one hundred that's baked into the system, mm-hmm. and that was published literally by the Trump administration. So uh, it's it's there, you know, and that was just one of these kind of cracks in the edifice of the fossil fuel denialism, where the reality is so stark and so dramatic at this point that. Uh, uh, you can't deny it. And that's why even the fossil fueled meme of, oh, no, climate change isn't happening. I mean, notice how that's shifted to where, okay, it's happening, but but humans aren't the cause. Or now it's, okay, it's happening, but we don't know how much humans are the cause. So you kind of watch them evolve the meme as the undeniability uh, of this becomes greater with each passing day. I think it was in the... Uh, Jim Bendel's Deep Adaptation. Had you read that? I have, yes. Yeah, so I think it's in there. He he actually footnotes a book called uh, Radical Hope, uh, which is about the, the Crow uh, chief uh, Plenicu or Plenicus, um, who who says, he's quoted at the beginning of the book uh, saying, you know, after the end of the buffalo, and there was nothing else to do, right? And and his, his perspective on the loss of of everything. Like there, there is no more crow. There is no more uh, way of life. There is no more of what we know. And it's an interesting thing to kind of look to that perspective. And you mentioned indigenous cultures and trying to understand those obligations to, to life, to living, to being, you know, versus obligations to dollars or obligations to your paycheck or your boss or your credit card company, things of that nature. Having to find a way to see the indigenous cultures that we've destroyed, ravaged, right, erased genocidally, uh, t- taken off the planet and saying, these now are the cultures that we should have always been listening to and learning from the entire time. And now they can tell us about how to die well also is ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it's true. And awful, all at the same time. It really is. And that's extremely well put. And and that is exactly the moment that we have arrived at. And that's why at the end of my book, I bring in indigenous wisdom and a couple of different stories, as well as quotes from a Cherokee healer named Stan Rushworth. And and we have a lot to learn from these folks. They They have survived genocide. They've already been through their own apocalypse, where you're talking about a loss of 90% of their entire population in an extremely short amount of time. I mean, they've already literally been through a Permian mass extinction, mm-hmm. if you will. I mean, that's what happened to the planet 252 million years ago when 90% of all life was lost. And so now we get to learn from them. And the question is, will we listen? And then, and then after we listen, what are we going to do? Because it comes down to at this point where, and I'm not saying all is lost. Like we, we, it's certainly 
is a dire situation and it does not look good. But since we've never been here before, we don't know what's going to happen. And I'm not putting that out there to try to blow any smoke or pretend to be hopeful. That would be, I think, the last thing that anybody reading my stuff would would say about me. But as long as there's any kind of minuscule chance that life can persist on this planet, and even if there's not, we have these moral obligations. And so I just keep coming back to that. And, and I'm redundant about it when I talk about it, probably because that's how I have to live today. That's how I, that's why I still get out of bed and I go do my work and I go out and I talk about my book and, and do these radio interviews because I think we all need to find a new way of being in this world. It's a completely different world. I mean, when I was born, the future was this unlimited road. I could do whatever I wanted and, you know, expect all these different things and parts of life to go on in perpetuity. And we don't live in that world anymore. You know, we have kids that are being born into this world where, you know, they're, they're 17 years old and they're going on school strikes trying to force the adult population to behave, behave accordingly to this crisis. Mm -hmm. That is not the world that I was born into. I'm Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is award-winning journalist Darja Mayle, author of The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption, published by the New Press. We focus throughout on confronting the certainty of the peril while adapting to the uncertainty of a way of living. Well, that is part of the dilemma that we face is our absolute inability to understand a world that is already racked by these problems. Like we can easily uh, just take a look at any part of the globe where the U.S. has invaded for, for one thing or an oil company has taken over the, the culture. Uh, go to any part of Africa where there's been drought after drought after drought, uh, drought after drought or any part of Africa where there's been warfare encouraged by interventionism uh, and find people uh, living uh, subsistence at best, you know, dying in camps. Um, that are living this this sort of future dystopia already. We've already created these dystopias. The hard part for people who live in this beautiful, fancy place we live in where I'm talking to you and watching my audacity record you on my, my laptop by uh, the, the giant Apple company um, where we have to say, oh my God, that is my future. I think it's just almost impossible for people to see, to, to imagine. Well, it, it is until it really starts happening to you directly. And, and my experience in that has been the closest I've come to it up where I live in the Pacific Northwest is the intensity of the smoke from the wildfires up here the last several summers. Mm. And it's I've just accepted this is just how it's going to be now uh, along the West Coast, uh, just mm. indefinitely, where it's, you know, because I have some respiratory issues and and it gets to a point where, you know, if it, but I'm I'm so privileged in that when it's we've been in two weeks of wildfire smoke and I'm coughing and I'm really suffering, worst case scenario, I can drive out to the West Coast and get some fresh air mm -hmm. because the, of the of the short the the breezes coming off of the Pacific. Well, most people don't can't do that, and so those of us living in these places where the the climate disruption impacts are forced upon us, that's when it gets really really real for anyone that hasn't experienced that yet. Because my experience has been literally my fight or flight response kicks in. It's this deep animal urge of, okay, what do I need to do to take care of myself? And then you realize 
you can't leave because mm. if I if you expand out to the macro and look at what's happening to the entire planet, we're not going to be going to Mars and living happily ever after. There is nowhere we can go. This is it. Here we are. And then we're, it's forced upon us again. What are we going to do? But first, we have to start with how are we going to be? And that's another line that that Stan Rushworth, who I mentioned earlier, shares. He says, look, it's about how are we going to comport ourselves during this time? Mm. That's that's the important thing is how are we going to behave? How much service can we carry out for people around us and people that we love and even people that we don't even know and for the planet itself? Because that that I think is the paramount MO, I think, for all of us at this time. Hmm. Well, you mentioned uh, how uh, generally there are basically sort of paradigms of dealing with it uh, and that uh, likely these are not necessarily going to do much for us, but are, are the way people are maybe approaching their own grief or their dawning realization of these issues. Uh, I think you mentioned Fix It, and this was in a talk I think you gave uh, uh, truth out, uh, a Truth Out talk with uh, for a sponsor by the Lannan Foundation to fix it, uh, mitigate it, or adapt to it, right? Uh, uh, you talk about the New Green Deal and Extinction Rebellion, soil regeneration and planting trees for mitigating and adapting, starting now, like you said, trying to go ahead and already have plans to move people out of coastal cities. Um, so uh, fix it is is that's a pie in the sky thing, maybe, or it's a, it's a hopeful thing and hope, hope being the thing with feathers that we need to let let free and not mm-hmm. not, not attach hope to this particular project. That's right. The fix it part, you know, we that that train left the station back in the 80s when NASA scientist James Hansen went before Congress and basically blew the whistle and said, Mm -hmm. look, here's what's going on. This is what we're doing to the planet. This is where this is going to go uh, if we do not make some radical changes right now to how we're doing things. That was, of course, not only ignored, but since then we've punched the gas and put it into fifth gear. Mm. And and so Fix It left the station decades ago. And so now we're left with mitigating. And even at this point, the mitigation as far as like, could we stop, could we shave one sea of warming off the trajectory before we hit 2100? That is really still pie in the sky stuff because even current technologies that are available to us about carbon sequestration, they would have to be upscaled 3 million times to really have the kind of impact that we would need to to really pull the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere to make a difference. But if, if it's even feasible to do some of that, to pull some out, to plant more trees, to, to, to lower our emissions, we, have to, we are morally obliged to do all of that because it, it could buy us some time in order to give us more time to do the third thing, which is I think this is what's really left on our plates now is adaptation mm-hmm. where, where, um, what do we, what can we do to build resiliency within, within our communities? Where does our food come from? Where does our water come from? Are there other people that we can bring into the fold to help? Um, are, how are we set up in our community to maybe uh, accommodate some of these refugees if we live in an area like where I live, where certainly we already have voluntary refugees moving up here. In fact, I call myself one because I looked at the modeling and the projections and it's like, well, the Pacific Northwest is a great place for the rest of my lifetime to be able to grow food and have access to water. Um, And certainly we're seeing a huge influx as we speak of people coming up from Washington and Oregon. But again, these are still voluntary refugees, because what happens when 
people are leaving involuntarily, like in Paradise, California, where their entire city burnt to the ground. So where do these people go? So this is the kind of things that I think is helpful for all of us to think about in regards to adaptation, not just physically, but to prepare ourselves mentally and psychologically so that when these crises unfold, we we have some ideas of, of how we might react instead of just uh, panicking. Yeah, panic seems like uh, seems likely though. I'm Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is award-winning journalist Darja Mail, author of The End of Ice: Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption, published by the New Press. We focus throughout on confronting the certainty of the peril while adapting to the uncertainty of a way of living. You know, I was thinking, you know, about adaptation. I was thinking about the ways in which um, we have to recognize the sort of disconnect about what humanity slash civilization means to so many people, and especially in these places that are sort of only just now sort of getting out of what we might have called a darker age of having no uh, fossil fuel electricity, right? That, that there's this place where we can't understand life without power generation. And, you know, when we talk about needing to stop emissions, this is, this is stopping. This isn't powering down. This is like, just turn it off, right? I mean, there's just no way else to, to think about it because you can't just keep doing it. Uh, but even doing those things, let's say we turn the switch tomorrow and all power is off and, you you know, Lord knows what happens at that point. That's crazy in the cities, of course, but we couldn't do it. Let's, I'm just saying, what if we could do it within, say, a year, actually not have any fossil fuels um, being uh, burned and used for, for power? Um, the issues are, like you said already, baked in. Uh, and that currently with melt, with end, the end of ice, uh, you note that there's like massive pockets of methane that are about to be released via permafrost uh, um, um, eroding and uh, going away as well as just sort of, uh, I guess, pockets in the ocean itself that, is be that because the ocean is warming are beginning to be released also. That's right. We already have uh, permafrost across the entirety of the Arctic that's thawing at, at rapid rates. That's releasing uh, CO2 and a slight amount of methane on its own. And then the subsea permafrost that contains methane hydrates, basically methane frozen into the ice as the Arctic Ocean warms, as that sea ice recedes, which speeds up the warming, which speeds up the recession of the sea ice. So that's a feedback loop. Subsea methane hydrates are also being released and this is already happening and methane is a far far more potent greenhouse gas than is co2 in fact it's 85 times more potent on a 10-year time scale and it's still 20 times more potent on a 100-year time scale so we're seeing things amp up and accelerate in such a way that as you said if we stopped all co2 emissions on a dime we still have to contend with an enormous amount of warming that's already baked into the system. And you see that being used in more and more scientific studies at this point, meaning the oceans have absorbed 93.6, I'm sorry, 0.4% of the heat that we've emitted into the atmosphere. And half of that heat has been absorbed just since uh, 1997. This is a stunning amount of energy. So you're not going to get that heat out of the oceans. That means the Western Antarctic ice sheet is still going to melt. 
huge parts of Greenland. Uh, that is a tremendous amount of warming that's there, displacing marine species, species, rearranging life in the oceans. Of course, we have acidification of the oceans hap- that's happening apace, and that would also continue as the oceans draw CO2 out of the atmosphere, even if we stopped all the emissions. So then this brings us back around to what I keep coming back to is, okay, how are we going to be? And the first and most important thing is we have to accept this new reality. And I think that's really the focus of so many of my talks and and why they're so intense for people to hear, because I feel like there aren't that many people out there really telling it like it is Mm -hmm. and having a conversation exactly what you and I are having right now. There's just still not that many people out there being this honest about the, the level of crisis that we're already in. And that's why it's imperative for us to accept the reality so that then we can make the adjustments we need to in our lives really prioritize what is really most important to me. Is it still most important for me to be trying to see how much money I can make or Mm. working a job that I don't really like, or, you know, you know, where are the people that are most important to me and how am I treating them? These are the types of questions that, that I think become more important, just like they do for any of us when we get to any potential end of life scenario, if it's having a friend in crisis in hospice, if we are in hospice, you know, all the BS goes away pretty quickly at that point. It's time for another break. This is Sunvolt with Too Early, off of their debut album Trace from 1995. More with Dar Jamail on the food shocks that are undoubtedly coming to the West sooner than we realize. Stay with us. My lid just taking its toll. Painted with lines to show You've had your fill of asphalt and Cough tremors and smoke-filled doors You look like the habit controls you You look like you need a rest you made it to the timber line Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. My guest is Dar Jamail, author of The End of Ice. We began this last segment by figuring climate catastrophe as akin to a diagnosis of terminal illness for everyone on the planet at once. How do we begin to have this conversation? Jamail stresses local focus and finding one person right now with whom to begin to take action. Too early you might 
might be the one Find yourself somewhere else Too early in the sun So you imagine telling the world or all the people you know, you say to them, um, you, you all have a terminal illness, right? So you, we can say it's cancer. Say you have cancer and you've got a certain kind of cancer. And we all know that if you have this kind of cancer, statistically, you'll be dead in three years. Now, some people live five years longer, some 10, some 20, et cetera. But most people, and by most, I mean 85, 90% live for about three years. And if you have that conversation with someone, you know, their, their life drops away. Right, their 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 ability to even think about life drops away for a long time. How does how is this going to? What does this mean? And this is part of the book that you say uh, that I think is important: finding meaning in this particular disruption. This is life disruption, just like being offered by your doctor a terminal illness. But it's not just your illness; it's everyone's illness, right? So this is the hardest part for I think for a lot of people. It's not. I'm 50, and I can say oh, I've lived 50 years, and I've been one of these polluters and people who haven't paid attention to climate change, and I deserve any you know any any negative thing a future that if there is a future could say about me. But I've lived enough life already in a lot of ways. But I have kids who are not even 20, and so you say that's the that's the problem of a cancer diagnosis to your 20 year old, your nine year old, your three year old. Right. These are part of the issues that I think are the hardest, hardest parts of this. I'm going to agree with everything you say here, Dar. Right. I'm going to agree with I'm going to say, of course, Amazon, the Amazon is now almost uh, emitting carbon, you know, as much as it's sequestering. Right. The, uh, I'm going to uh, the coral reef is dying. It's going to be dead. Uh, oceans have acidified. There's not life there. This is a the vast a uh, way in which the 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 world actually lives is under the ocean you know under the water right all that's going away so this is a terminal illness and we all have to face that that's that's just that's just not something that, that you really can talk about with anybody. I mean, I, I just don't know what to do about it. Like, I'm talking about it now, and it's going to be on the radio, and it's going to be talking about it, and hopefully people will say more about it. Instead of in this town, we talk about should we build another parking garage or not. Um, you know, this is a different conversation on a level that that's just almost impossible. And that's one of the most challenging parts of this time is that so many people won't have this conversation. I mean, I even in my world and I've been, you know, I've been writing about this for nearly 10 years and steeped in this kind of data for the book for over five. And it's it's stunning to me that I still only have a handful of people in my life that I can call and have genuine conversations with and know that they really get the magnitude of the crisis that this planet is in right now and then have conversations on that very, very real level. It's really challenging to find people. And so I encourage people like, you know, if, once you find somebody that you can have this conversation with, stick with them and keep having it because I have to talk about this stuff and process it on a regular basis. I mean, I just can't keep taking this in and not do anything because I've gone through the gamut of struggling with depression and, you know, the trauma that comes with this kind of information, just like so many of the big climate scientists do, that this is really, really hard to bear. And the answer is, though, is is community, is we have to have other people around that we can do this with. And that's another thing that we can learn from indigenous cultures. I mean, corporate capitalist society fragments us. It atomizes us from one right. another. It, is it isolates us. And we need to be doing the opposite right now. We need to be 
having deep community. That's part of that resiliency that I mentioned of where are the people that we can get together and talk with about this. And then, and that for, if it's nothing else, it's just processing the news and, and sharing our anger and our sadness and our grief around it. And then after that, okay, what, what can we as a small group do? You know, there are things like, you know, in my, <clears throat> in my community, and we were, we were just talking about it earlier that some of our mutual friends who, who, uh, have moved out here, you know, we have a small community garden together and, and, and we do talk about what's going on and understand it. And, and we have this garden and it's joyful to, to share that project together and then reap the benefits from it together. And, and so it's, it's like that. Well, that is a great, uh, a great way to think of it because again, you will at least be living well while you are living, uh, and living in proximity to people who you care about. It would be nice if we were able to sort of push this point home. It's part of how I got started in, in radio in the first place was almost just a, as an anti-capitalist in a lot of ways because you see enough around you that you say these, are, these processes are the problem, right? This economic system, at least in this part of the world, has been a problem and this has, has shared its problems with the rest of the world by stealing resources and, and creating these issues across the globe, militarized this and that as well. Um, and so, you know, when you point out the rights versus obligations situation, this is to call forth a liberal ideology of individualism as opposed to uh, communalism, right, as opposed to a culture that understands a shared identity, a shared perspective, a shared prospective. Um, this is what we need to do, you know, and, but you have to kind of dis detach yourself from the economics of it. You know, it's hard to have a life at all absent economic capabilities, right? So t turning into these community gardens is great if you have the wherewithal to do so. And even if you don't, you can go there. But a lot of people can't not have money right now, can't not pay their rent, can't, you know, all these things are like barriers to taking that step forward into not going to work, but going to work on the garden, you know, not going to work, but going to uh, sit in the forest for a while to, to just say, I'm done with that. You know, I, I'm not going to pay that bill. I'm not, I'm not going to worry about these things. Emerson says somewhere, you know, uh, does a man have to put uh, his creditors first in, in the order of the things that are important to him? Mm -hmm. You know, no. <laughs> right? <clears throat> so we have to figure out a way to say no to that economic system as well. That's exactly right. And again, I think community is the answer. And, and I know, I mean, I feel the overwhelm even just listening to some of what you just said of like, wow, look what has to change. I mean, the whole entire system has to go. There's no question about it. And so how do we get there? And again, it comes back to like, okay, is there one person I can find and work with and start making even the most rudimentary changes in my life of, da of voluntary downsizing? Because it's all going to be forced upon us right. economically. Like we are going to have food shocks in this country mm. on the level that caused the Arab Spring. There is no, no question about this. Like this is coming and I think it's coming sooner than most people think. Look mm -hmm. at the floods that just hit the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Look at what's happening in Australia with the droughts and the heat and the fires. I mean, these food shocks are coming to the West immediately. I mean, literally within the next just handful of years at best. And so can we start voluntarily downsizing now, reducing our needs, finding ways to need less money? And I think no matter where we live, if we prioritize that, 
we can start heading in that direction right now, no matter what our circumstances, even if it seems like the most menial, small, inconsequential action. I'm Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is award-winning journalist Darja Mayo, author of The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption, published by the New Press. We focus throughout on confronting the certainty of the peril while adapting to the uncertainty of a way of living. Is there one one example that you say, you know what, this is the thing that really, really, really hit home to me. This is the one thing that I was like, this is, this is undeniable. One of the most obvious, uh, invisible, visceral things to me is snorkeling on top of the Great Barrier Reef mm. uh, when it was undergoing, it was in the first week of a major bleaching event in, that struck it in 2017. There had been one in 2016. There was one in 2018. Now there's one uh, starting right now because of record temperatures there. And the coral bleaching, literally, you're on, I, was, I was floating on top of the single biggest coral reef on the planet. It's 1,400 miles long. It's a World Heritage Site. Uh, uh, I'd been there before when it was in pretty incredible shape about 20 years prior. Mm. And I was, I was over just, you know, as far as I could see, just, just, just huge amounts of coral that were completely bleached out, meaning it was starving to death because the ocean temps were too high and it was, it was going to be dying soon. And we, and then to, and then knowing while that was happening, the reports had already come out saying, that the Great Barrier Reef is probably now in its terminal stage, mm. and it probably won't be around for another 10 years, on top of the macro knowing that there probably won't be any really functional coral reefs anywhere on the planet by 2050 uh, at the current trajectory of things, and knowing that about a quarter of all marine life spends some part of its life on the reef, and think of the implications of that. And I was on top, of, I, was, I was snorkeling on the reef, and I was crying into my mask, mm. just because you can feel it in your body you can feel like it's it's quiet when you know the fish go away you know normally on a reef it's quite noisy there's all kinds of clicking and there's all kind of fish activity and in, in the bleached areas it's a it's a sort of a dead zone there's there's no noise it's silent all the colors gone you can just feel the impending death and and i felt that in my body and i also felt like this is likely the last time i will say goodbye to this amazing part of nature on the planet and and because uh, it will probably be gone bef- and if i ever before i would g- get back down there again and and i really felt that in my body and i i think it's important to say goodbye to these places um for that in its own sake but also because then what is left becomes that much more precious and that we we and then that moral obligation kicks in for me that much more strongly okay what am i doing now to take care of this area right here where I live that is still here. Yeah. Well, you when you and I had emailed before, I, I was telling you I was making my way through the book and it was getting harder and harder to deal with. And you at some point said, well, you know, make it to the end. There'll be, there'll be something that gives you, you know, I don't think you said uplift, but you, you, you said, you know, there would be a way in which, you know, you tried to help me through that in some ways, you know, and part of that is, is, is a kind of grief counseling, right? A kind of way in which you, you accept 
um, this situation. Uh, you can be angry about it. I wish people would be angry about it very quickly. As you said, I think in one of your talks, the, the kids uh, today, the young, the youth that are aware of this are very angry or are beginning to mobilize and, and, and show that anger. Um, I, it's just there are so many people you'd like to see um, really – I don't. I, I hate to use terms like strung up or you know, guillotined, but, but it's one of the things where you're just like the world has known these things. You know, the people in charge of of the world, and I, I, it's awful that this is the world we've lo- lived in, where other people are in charge of how we've managed the world. Um, have known these things, as you say, before the 80s, and the oil companies and fossil fuel companies knew them in the 70s or before. We had, uh, you know, Rachel Carson telling us about these effects of of poisons, which could be extrapolated out to anything that we introduce into nature uh, in the early 60s. Well, we had a dust bowl also, for God's sake. So we, we know the effects we've been having. And it's just so hard to not really want to turn on several groups of people. Right. That's my, you know, it's an avengeful, you know, you really, you really want there to be some kind of revenge you can take on certain people. Well, and it's, I think it's good to have, I think that part of the grieving process is to let all the feelings come up. And I I think it's, I think that kind of anger is in rage has its place. And, you know, if you can't get passionate about this, then Mm. all is lost for you already. You know, I mean, and and this is a time that I think it would be good if more people felt passionately these feelings and then acted upon them Mm -hmm. and really started taking seriously what they're going to do. Um, this, this is a time for revolutionary change. This is a time to take radical acts. It is a time to take risks, you know, putting our bodies on the line for what we really truly believe in and care about. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if, if not now, when, I mean, I honestly mean that if not now, when, um, and, and, and channel that in a way. And, and, you know, this is, this is a great, part of the conversation. I mean, I, this doesn't come up hardly ever in any of the interviews that I do or uh, talks that I have, maybe sometimes during some of the Q&As, but really get down and, and wrestle with these questions that we've never had to ask ourselves before because we don't know where we're going. Mm-hmm. And and writing this book has forced me into these conversations. And every time I give a book talk, the talk's different because it's evolving as I and my thinking are evolving. Mm-hmm. Because I don't have all the answers. I'm just muddling through sometimes. I'm just laying out the facts at people's feet that I found and then trying to work through with them. Okay, what the hell do we do now? Right. You know, because this is the biggest thing that's ever faced our species ever. That's our show. We'll close with the Smithereens' Groovy Tuesday off of the 1986 album, Especially for You. Henry Thoreau says only nature can grieve perpetually, for she only is innocent. But he also says that for nature, there is no loss. She finds her own again, under new form. Thanks to Darjameo for all his great work on the front lines of both war and climate catastrophe. His is a strong compassion. He's the author of The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption, published by the New Press in February this year. Where I was blind, now I see. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchain. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up on your community radio station, WFHB.
matter if I'm still alive.